That Wellbeing at Work show is brought to you by Body Boost, the well-being engagement platform that employees actually use. Find out more at bodyboost.co.uk. You almost need to hold well-being in one hand and have that in one hand whilst you make any other decision in the organisation. So you're really empathising with, are we doing this in a way that's conducive to somebody's good well-being? And I think for most of the leading organisations at the moment, they're in this mindset of we're moving away from do no harm to we've got to do better. Welcome to That Wellbeing at Work show. I'm Chris Taylor, your show host. Author, speaker and psychologist Gethin Needham is one of the world's top employee experience and well-being influencers. Gethin's work has been featured in the FT, Forbes, Guardian and the Huffington Post, amongst others. Gethin is also chair of the UK government-backed Engage for Success Wellbeing Thought Action Group and a fellow at the RSA. I begin by asking Gethin if there was a clear definition of employee well-being. Gethin, um, welcome to the show. So employee well-being, we hear the term all of the time. And I wondered if you had a sort of a clear definition of what we're talking about. I mean, some people say there are four pillars, others five. And actually on Google this morning, I found someone who's saying there are even six pillars of well-being. What is it all about? Yeah, good question. I think uh, lots of organisations are still struggling to define what well-being means to them. Um, I, I work with customers who have five pillars of well-being. I've got one customer who's got 26 pillars of well-being. <laughs> Do um, they know what the 26 are? <laughs> it's just, it's basically, they've just drilled down into more detail. But okay. I, I, for me, it's broad. There's broadly kind of five areas. Um, some of those will be familiar to your listeners, uh, physical well-being, financial well-being. I like to use emotional well-being rather than mental health. I like just to focus on the idea that we all have this kind of sliding scale of mental health and some days we feel a bit rubbish and some days we feel great. And and actually, you know, it's not just about the absence of a mental health condition that can kind of affect our mood. So emotional well-being is one of the ones for me. Um, another one I like to use is um, community well-being. Um, mm-hmm. So for me at work, that includes the relationships we have with the people that we work with, the sense of community and belonging we kind of feel at work, but also outside of work. So how we practice in altruism, how we kind of volunteering and donating to charity and creating a better society. And that then starts to seep into some of the environmental, social and governments issues as well. So how are we creating better societies? Because there's very close links between well-being and uh, sustainability. Uh, and then lastly, uh, leisure well-being. I think, you know, I, I came up with that term before the pandemic. Um, but I think as soon as the pandemic hit, we all started to realise how important it actually was to spend time on the things we love doing with the people that we love. And having those opportunities to kind of decompress and de-stress from work, spending time with people is, is really, really important. So whether that's spiritual, cultural pursuits, just going to the cinema or going to a bar, whatever it is that people do to kind of make life fulfilling, I think that's a really important part of well-being. And I think if you think about it in those kind of broad five pillars, you start to really move away from the idea that well-being can be solved by just buying stuff, which is what I think a lot of the market is focused on at the moment. Okay, so now we have a clear definition. Um, Why why should an organisation then be bothered about it? Um, I think we now have enough vast and compelling evidence that those organisations that commit to employee wellbeing perform better. Um, We know when we look at, in the UK, if we look at the FTSE 100, there's a direct statistical significant difference between those organisations in the FTSE 100 who commit more to wellbeing and how they perform in terms of profits and shareholder returns. But it kind of makes sense, right? If you think about 
you know, we are a long, long way away from the idea that people go to work to get a pay and that's it, the transaction finishes. We actually start to now, and I think most organizations are getting this, especially since the pandemic, that employees are kind of in the best possible way assets to be invested in um, when we support them when we take care of them when we enable them to thrive they produce better things for us they design better products they deliver better customer service they sell more products um, and so it's really about um, an investment in in people in the same way that you think about whether you're maintaining a car or whatever it might be the the better you look after it the better it performs and I think that's that's the view most people now have about well-being. But I think, like I say, buoyed by the pandemic, we're, we're at this point now where I think if you don't understand the impact that employee well-being has on your organization, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. I think if you don't, get, <laughs> if you don't get that already, then you might as well switch off this podcast now because we're not going to convince you uh, anymore. Okay, so is is some of the um, is some of this also driven by let's say Generation Z, Generation Z, millennials? Um, actually, they have a very different perspective of the world of work, and they have a very different sort of perspective on what they'd like to get out of it. Do you think that also has sort of driven some of this agenda? Would you say? Yeah, undoubtedly. I think if you look at, um, and I don't, I I tend to not like looking at generations because I think some of the the generational research that is kind of ingrained in our minds is based on some pretty ropey research originally. So kind of what millennials are and what they want is, is all based on some pretty questionable research from the U S many years ago. But broadly, when you think about most people at work now, um, they don't want to just earn a salary. It's the reason why most of us will go to work clearly. And lots of people I completely admit do not have the luxury. They have to work in places that they don't want to work because that's the only job they can get or they just need to kind of keep the wall from the door but for lots more people we're we're considering you know is work this positive force in my life is work enabling me to do the things I want to do in life Um, and when you start to think about work in that context you start to think about is work allowing me to kind of pay back to community is work allowing me to make a difference to the world or society Um, and that doesn't come at odds anymore with with pay you know that used to be you wanted to be a vocation, so kind of you want to work for a third sector, a charity or a teacher, you know, all those kind of roles where everyone just believed you went into doing those because you believed in the cause and you weren't focused on money. Uh, those two things aren't mutually exclusive. You can earn a high wage now and still have a really positive impact on the world. And I think that's the balance that lots of people are striving to try and get is, can I earn enough money to, to live the life I want to live, but can I also do some good by taking that job? Hmm. Okay, but it's changing tack slightly. So, just sort of looking at the sort of the, the whole overall well-being market, I, there was an article that you wrote, I think, last year for for Reba, and you revealed that the well-being technology space, for example, is is valued at more than nine billion dollars, and I think the overall market in well-being is some sort of fifty billion dollars. But looking at this technology, I wondered how much of it has sort of proven medical or professional research and evidence to back it up. Simply, has anyone sort of tested the efficacy of any of this tech? Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a real bit in my teeth about this at the moment. So this is a, a great question. Um, so when I was doing the research for that article and, and a few since, you know, there are almost a million digital health apps that are now released um, through the various different uh, app stores. I think I've got most of them downloaded, actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's kind of, you know, even IQVIA, even if you take the most conservative kind of views, um, people at IQVIA have found that, you know, there's about 400,000. So, um, 
you know, there's an awful lot of them. And I think exactly as you pointed out, people have just taken their old products, dusted them off, put the word well-being in front of it, and and now to kind of reselling that into a market that's, you know, where that's on trend and, and people are particularly interested in. Yeah. Um, but even throughout the pandemic, you know, we saw a large increase in in people downloading and searching for those apps, those types of apps during the pandemic. And interestingly, even doctors themselves reported a six and a half thousand percent increase in searching for apps that they could recommend to their patients to deal with the increase they had in patient numbers and wait times. Mm-hmm. So how could I palm people off the tech so that you know I don't have these huge wait times that lots of doctors had during the pandemic? Yeah. Um, but I think worryingly, despite the kind of huge rise in adoption of things like mental health apps globally, it's pretty obvious to me that the vast majority of them, in, including some of those endorsed by the people like the NHS in the UK, are actually clinically unproven and potentially ineffective. Mm. And there was a really interesting study published in 2017 in uh, professional psychology. Um, and they warned that, and this is a direct quote, Given the current state of the research, clinicians may wish to consider cautiously incorporating apps as an adjunct to the treatment or recommending apps to clients. Um, And I think what was unknown at the time was not only about the ineffectiveness of many of these apps, but in some circumstances, they believe that apps might actually make mental health conditions worse. And those concerns have have prevailed quite a lot over the couple of years, um, with a couple of studies suggesting that the use of many mental health apps can actually lead to an over-reliance and anxiety around kind of self-diagnosis. Um, but uh, over the last couple of years, there's been many different large studies that were looking at the efficacy of these apps. And one group of researchers studied almost 2,000 mental health apps around the world. And while they found that about 64% of them claimed they had evidence of their effectiveness, only 14% were able to prove any evidence. And another big Australian study conducted a major review of all the app stores and uh, and such like around the world. Um, and they were specifically looking at apps that offering treatment to aid depression and anxiety. And those researchers found that just 3.4% of apps had research to actually justify lots of their claims of effectiveness. Um, and again, the list goes on, but there was another big study last year that looked at, looked at the fact that most mental health apps suffer from a, a lack of underlying evidence base, a lack of scientific credibility, and limited clinical effectiveness. And so as of kind of the end of 2021 in the US, of the 20-odd thousand mental health apps available for download, just five of those had been formally vetted and approved by the FDA. And so, yeah, I, I grow increasingly concerned, I think, about the ineffectiveness, uh, or, or you know, not necessarily the ineffectiveness, but the lack of proof of the effectiveness of many of the well-being interventions that you know, really big brands are putting in front of their employees every day. Does it need to be regulated then? Does it need a regulator here? I think it does, and I think it's it's definitely seems to be uh, heading that way. Um, there's a, an organisation called um, ORCA, which is the Organisation for the Review of Care and Health Apps, and they kind of told a, a medical magazine last year that their biggest worry was that despite the kind of progress we've had in digital mental health support, as an example, they found that the majority of apps would fail their own assessment process. And they found that only a third of apps would score above their baseline of acceptability, which was at 65%. So there are organizations who are picking up some of that slack. But I think, you know, if there's almost a million well-being apps and there's scientists and researchers and psychologists saying, and we're not entirely sure whether this is going to make the situation worse or not, then I think there's going to come a point where somebody has to step in and say, you can't just say, buy this thing and I'll solve mental health in your organisation. And in many cases, that's just not true. 
Okay. And looking at sort of communications surrounding health messaging, I mean, they're, they're always sort of notoriously ineffective. I was just thinking about, you know, we're all told to, you know, reduce our alcohol consumption or eat, you know, five portions of fruit and veg a day, which very few people seem to do. Um, and you mentioned in, in, in that article that you that you wrote for Reba about the, the term psychological reactants as a reason why we don't do something that we're told is fundamentally good for us. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think this is it's a it's a really good example. I think everyone's probably experienced because you know even when I was in school, we got told eat five bits of fruit and vegetables a day, yeah, right. drink eight glasses of water, sleep yeah. for eight hours, uh, exercise or um, kind of have physical activity for fifteen minutes a day. Those those heuristics have been driven into us, you know, in, in our entire lives. Um, but most of us don't do that stuff, um, and. The reality is most people don't like being told what to do. Most people don't like having to face up to um, the fact that they might not be healthy and they need to do work. Um, there's an ugly truth that lots of us don't like um, admitting to. Um, and it's easy for us to just park that stuff and, and, and just not listen to it and not listen to those thoughts that are in our heads. And it's the reason why most people, when you think about health behavior change, don't actually start changing their behavior until there's some big compelling reason why they should do that. What, a crisis? Well, it could be a crisis. It could be, I'm getting married next year, so I need to lose weight because I want to look good. <laughs> it could be as, as, as simple as that. But, you know, I think about family members I know who had been warned about uh, a diabetes diagnosis and at the start of the pandemic got a diabetes diagnosis. And it was like, well, it's not a surprise. You know, you were told by the GP quite a lot that this might be a diagnosis that was coming unless you made changes. And that family member suddenly started to make all the changes, started exercising more, going on more walks, started eating better. But it, frustratingly, I look at that as a psychologist and I think, you know, you acted once you absolutely had to. You ignored the warning signs that were coming down down the line. Um, and unfortunately, that's if you look at any model of health behaviour change since the 70s, the kind of the starting point is the kind of so like, why should I be concerned? How does it affect me? What happens if I do nothing? What happens if I do something? And I think what we've probably not been very good at is showing people the kind of brighter side of, of action. So if you look at, um, so we see this with a behavior change in, in pensions is a really good example. There was some really good research done by the Behavioral Insights team um, as part of the UK Cabinet Office in December last year. And they were looking at why people don't pay into their pension. And now, you know, if you all these messages we used to use in the workplace which was basically you know if if you don't pay into your pension you're going to retire and you're going to be eating a tin of cat food every day because you're not going to have <laughs> enough money to do all the things you want to do um and then we started changing that kind of language that we it changed to kind of don't have your starbucks coffee every day and instead put that two dollar fifty or whatever it is into your 401k or your retirement fund and that would start to you know give a little bit up today and, and pay that into the future mm. And actually, if you look at some of the research that's come out of Behavioural Insights team, what they looked at last year was actually, can I show people what their life might look like when they hit 70, 80? And if I then show them in, if you're 80 years old and you put this amount of money into your pension today, by the time you're 80, you're going to be able to go out for a meal twice a week and have two holidays abroad twice a year. And as soon as you start to show people the lifestyle that they could be living, that's when you start to have an impact on people's behaviour. And there's some really, really fun and exciting examples of how studies have shown that in the past where, you know, if you, if, a, if a man or a woman puts a photograph of their children in their wallet so that they can see, 
they start to spend less frivolously. Mm. They start to consider, oh, actually, I've got kids and I maybe there's a money I can spend this money better. And it's kind of no different to anyone who's lost weight putting a picture of their old selves on the fridge to try and uh, move themselves away from um, you know, putting more weight or eating unhealthily. Mm. And so I think there's um, a lot here which I think we should focus on kind of how can we be more aspirational? How can we show employees what life could look like and how much better life could be rather than trying to scare them into inaction? So it's um, positive messaging as opposed to negative messaging. I think so. And we've got some really recent examples through the pandemic. You know, the UK government put these posters up during the pandemic of people on ventilators with masks on their face, you know, lying in hospital dying, basically saying, if you don't wear your mask, this person's going to die. And that didn't work. Behavioral psychologists and behavioral scientists all around the world decried that. They were like, this fear, this fear stuff does, doesn't work. And if you think about a lot of how we've looked at health behavior change, it's been driven around fear. So mm. cigarette packets having rotten teeth or rotten lungs on the covers, you know, cigar packets saying if you, if you smoke cigars, you'll be impotent. That fear messaging hasn't worked. The only thing that worked when it came to smoking as an example was you kind of made it a bit uncool to smoke and you made people go outside and stand in the cold and all of a sudden that's the only real um, anti-smoking uh, campaign that ever really worked. And so, yeah, I think we've got to change the messaging and there's a lot that employers can learn about the way that governments and the state and health services have, have, have operated over the years about how can we get employee well-being to work in our organisation. I think it has to be aspirational. You're frustrated that not enough of your people take advantage of the well-being resources you've put in place for them? Then look no further than Body Boost. Our unique body system and community features are the magic ingredients which get people to team up and form healthy habits together. And they have a lot of fun along the way too. Download case studies from our website or email us on info at bodyboost.co.uk And if you're looking at well-being in general in terms of the organisation, then I was just thinking, you know, if stress and anxiety and burnout, these are words that are, you know, that are used all the time and it seems to be endemic in most workplaces. And shouldn't leaders, therefore, and, and in particular HR directors or leaders, be sort of directly addressing the causes of some of this stress at work? And I was, you know, I interviewed recently for another podcast, Julia Hobsbawm, and she said in the new book, in the, the NOAA office, that actually what we need is less warm words and more action. Um, and if we don't tackle things like poor job design and toxic work cultures and presenteeism and unrealistic deadlines and all of that, is all of the well-being in the world at work rather useless if we don't actually look at the fundamentals of the work and the workplace? I wouldn't say it was useless, but I think the the boom of these kind of well-being apps and well-being solutions that employers can go and buy has muddied the water around that kind of definition of well-being and if you think about those five pillars i spoke about at the start mm. you know, within that stuff it's like you know if i've got a friend at work i'm more likely to be engaged i'm more likely to stay loyal to that business i'm less likely to kind of feel lonely outside of work and so again that sort of our well-being is kind of the connections we have in the workplace and you, know, you mentioned burnout burnout has kind of been a a theme of the pandemic and if you look at the reasons why burnout happens in an organization and burbeck university have done a lot of research on this it's almost entirely organizational structure reasons why people burn out it's 
Uh, I'm not getting recognized for the job. Um, I don't get the autonomy that I need. My workload is too much. Um, I'm not getting clear direction. It's all that kind of stuff that the evidence says causes burnout. Yet when you think about how lots of big employers have responded to burnout, they've effectively said to somebody, oh, you're burnt out and we caused it, but here's a way for you to go and self-medicate to get over your burnout. And we saw that with big employers like Bumble and LinkedIn and Nike, who during the pandemic surveyed their employees and those employees said, I'm burnt out. And they responded by saying, okay, we're going to give everyone a week off paid so you can get over your burnout and then come back to work. And it just it's not solving the problem. They're going back to the same workplace in the same way that caused the problems in the first place. And so I think when you think about well-being at work, you have to think about all those interactions that you have with employees and how it might drive it. And a really simple one that I'm sure every listener has experienced at some point is if your manager sends you a message on Friday evening saying, I need to have a chat with you on Monday, and that's <laughs> all the message says, that's going to drive a lot of anxiety. That's going to affect the well-being of that person all weekend. Um, and so they're the kind of behaviors that you need everyone in the business to understand that, you know, if we're prioritizing well-being, we've got to think about those things. And a really good example we had in the UK recently was one of our major banks um, does a huge amount when it comes to well-being. They've signed all these mental health charters. They're very kind of prolific when it comes to talking about mental health in the workplace. They've won lots of awards. They buy lots of well-being tools. They do all the right things and they communicate it in the right way. But when one of their employees had a cancer diagnosis, they fired that employee because they wouldn't be there, but they'd be getting cancer treatment and wouldn't be there at work and being productive. And that employee took them to court, despite being a very good at high paid employee for kind of six years, took them to court and said, look, this was unfair dismissal. And a recording that was played out in court was that person's manager phoning HR saying, this person's going through cancer treatment, they're not going to be at work now. So how can I get rid of them? And so for me, in that example, and that person's actually won that court case, and will probably receive in the region of £2 million from that bank. But in that example, all the things that the HR team were doing failed into a significant for that one person because that person's experience was, well, no, you don't take care of your people and you didn't take care of me. And so I think we've really got to get the whole organisation to understand that it's not just HR's job to solve. We all have responsibility over well-being. And for many people in a big organisation, their experience of that employer is going to be their own manager. So if their own manager is not bought into this, if their own manager doesn't see employee well-being as part of their success as an individual and a manager, then we're never going to get employee well-being right. Sure. The interesting thing is, is um, co- exactly as you've kind of said, companies don't always act in, in a way that prioritizes the well-being of their people, even when they think they do. And I think that's because we don't, you know, if we think about well-being in the reactionary way that I think many of us have thought about it for a long time, you wait until there's a problem and then you try and fix that problem. You don't see this aggregation of marginal gains that actually the little things an employer can do can wear somebody down over a period of time. And it's where you start to see the crossover between well-being and diversity inclusion, for example. Somebody who doesn't feel welcome in your organization is more likely to develop a mental health condition. Mm. If you are a black employee, if you are a woman, if you are a gay employee, you're all more likely to develop poor mental health because of the way society is structured against you. And so the workplace needs to change, not just because diversity inclusion is something we should all be doing and actually commits quite strongly to to organizational success. It's part of well-being as well. Feeling included, feeling represented at work enhances the well-being of the individual. So it's really complex, but I think you know, you almost need to hold well-being in one hand and have that in one hand 
whilst you make any other decision in the organization. Mm. So you're really empathizing with, are we doing this in a way that's conducive to somebody's good well-being? And I think for most of the leading organizations at the moment, they're in this mindset of we're moving away from do no harm to we've got to do better. Mm. We've got to make sure that work is a positive force in people's lives. So it's not just us making sure we don't cause burnout, but actually, as you've mentioned, how do we help them with the cost of living increase, which we as employers haven't started. It's not we didn't start this problem. No. It's not necessarily our problem to solve. But if I want to be a good, responsible employee that people want to come and work for, do I feel like I have responsibility over those people? And most organizations now agree they do. They just need to start thinking about well-being as every touch point they have with an employee. So this really has to be very bespoke, doesn't it? As bespoke as you can possibly make it. Yeah, and I think, you know, we are we are such diverse people with ever-changing needs. Well-being has to be personalized to the individual. I think we have to treat everyone as an individual. Mm. And that's why we need managers to be bought into well-being, because if you employ 50,000 people, that's very difficult to do unless you've got managers to have some kind of control or responsibility over well-being. Okay. And you mentioned at the beginning how important a sense of community and belonging is in an organization in terms of the well-being. Uh, can you expand a little on that? Oh, well, yeah. So if we look at burnout, so all those reasons that cause burnout, um, you know, as I mentioned, lots of those will be structural, but the most effective way of dealing with burnout is for people to have more people in their life that they can trust and lean on and speak to. So it makes us incredibly resilient to the stuff that life throws at us when we have more people around that we can speak to. And that doesn't necessarily mean just friends and family, but the people that we work with, you know, people I can go to and I can just speak to and I can run ideas past and I can kind of go out for a coffee with. It's really, really important part of, of, of our overall well-being is that connection to other people. And I think we all experienced how important people were during the pandemic when we were disconnected from them, when we couldn't spend time with them. Um, and there are so many examples and so many bits of research that show, you know, people who are struggling with their mental health, going out and spending time with other people um, makes a huge difference. And so in the workplace, it's a really, really big part of well-being, but it's also a really big part of performance because we live in a world now where collaboration is really important, innovation is really important, and we need people working together to get that. So from an inside work sense, that sense of community, getting people together is, is really, really important. And, and I completely accept that in a hybrid working world, that's going to become more difficult to achieve. But I think that's where you start to think of the workplace as offering the stuff you can't get at home. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think the office has to become something else, doesn't it? It almost has to become, you, you know, as someone else said, you know, private members club that people literally, yeah. or an airport lounge that people are dropping in and they're, they're meeting and they're having a cup of tea and a cup of coffee and catching up with colleagues and having a few meetings. And um, you might not see them again for a couple of weeks. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, we, we all know this. We know that as soon, when we understand somebody on a personal level, we start to engage more with that person. And I, mm. one of the examples I really like using is, if you ever watch television programs in the US or the UK or kind of throughout Europe, like First Dates or The Apprentice, you tend to see these contestants walk onto these programs and, you know, they, they come across as a bit arrogant and they say a few things that are a bit kind of cringeworthy and you kind of think, oh, who's this idiot? God, who's going to go on a date with him? And then they start talking about their life and they talk about the challenges they've had and they might have gone through bereavement or whatever it might be. And all of a sudden you start warming to that person. You kind of think, oh, he's a nice guy, actually. And I think if we do more of that in the workplace, then I think 
we start to bridge some of those gaps where suddenly they're not just somebody who works in a team. You start to see them as a parent or a husband or a wife or a partner. And I think when we understand people like that, the workplace becomes much better on many different fronts. So how do we get back to that point where, you know, when I first started working, I had structured breaks. You work four hours, you get a 30-minute break. You work another two hours, you get a 15-minute break. We structured the day around me sitting in a canteen having time with people. Mm. That doesn't happen anymore. So I think we almost need to bring some of that stuff back. And exactly as you said, when you look at some of the plans big consultancy firms and banks have got around what their head office is going to become, some of them are even looking at, do we put beds and rooms in? So rather than using hotels, you actually sleep at the office. And you sleep at the office um, or you turn some of your floors into a mini hotel so that you make it easy for people so they can you know, connect with those people all day long. You can have breakfast with your team. Um, and, and I'm quite excited by that. You know, I've for 10 years lived three hours almost away from the office. So people have had to try quite hard to get me to go to a meeting because it needs to be justified six hours on the road. So, um, <laughs> Got to drag but, you there. <laughs> Well, interestingly, since we've started, kind of lockdowns have finished and the start of 2022, I've been back to the office quite a few times and it's almost entirely been based around having a few, exactly as you said, a kind of few casual catch-ups, going out Mm. for coffee, meeting people for lunch and just kind of reaffirming the connections I had with people and just making sure that those bonds are still there because that's a really important my success at work is to be close to those people yeah okay now lastly i'm look i'm a newly appointed hr director or chief people officer and i'm building an employee well-being um strategy from scratch and i sort of want to know what foundations do you think i ought to have in place even before i start looking at any technology or well-being vendors to help support my objective what would you say i the very first thing that you would do uh, it's a great question. So in the last year or so, I've run probably 100 different well-being workshops with large employers all over the world. And the first question I asked them is, if I stopped one of your employees on the street and I asked them if their employer cared about them, what would they say? And I think that question can start to get people thinking a little bit about what do we need to do? Because sometimes I think the answer to that question is more important than the stuff you do. If somebody believes you will be there for them if they really needed it, the stuff you buy and the things you put in place become less important. Sure, But I think you start to get to the point, which is why are we doing well-being? Why is well-being important to this organization? Because, you know, when I first got into this industry, well-being was about how do I get you back at work and productive as soon as possible? If you break your leg, how do I get you back? I'll give you private medical because I want you to get treatment straight away because I want you back at work. And as I mentioned at the start, that's now changed to, well, no, I care about you and I want to do right by you. And I know that unless you're in the right frame of mind and in a good, happy, healthy place, I'm not going to get the best out of you. So how do I how do I fix those things to make sure that you kind of are as productive and as engaged as I need you to be? And so I think thinking about why you're doing well-being, if you're doing well-being just because your sickness rates are really high or you're doing well-being because your health insurance in the US is going through the roof and so actually you don't want people claiming that will start to fail pretty quickly. The largest workplace well-being studies we've seen across the US since this pandemic started have shown that when you design for the organization, well-being fails. When you design for the individual, it starts to succeed. And so I would say the first thing to do is kind of consider why is well-being important to this organization? Why are we doing it? And what do we hope to get out of it? And then how do we make sure we design that around what the employee wants and needs? Because everything else will start to fall into place following that. 
Gethin Naden, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to That Wellbeing at Work show. To listen to more episodes and to find out more on how Body Boost can drive engagement in your wellbeing programs, go to our website or email us on info at bodyboost.co.uk. 